Good morning. This is Jeff Cohn with the Wall Street Resource, and joining me is RJ. RJ is the CEO of Immune Bio. Good morning, RJ. Yeah, good morning, Jeff. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. Our, our pleasure. So for those that aren't familiar with Immune Bio, can you just give us a quick overview of the company? Yes, uh, we are uh, a company that does one thing. We are focused on reprogramming the innate immune system to treat diseases. Now, what the heck does that mean? Because that sounds a little more complicated than it actually is. It turns out that, you know, our immune system is involved in every aspect of, of of our survival. And inflammation um, is a very big part of what keeps us ticking, so to speak. The problem is, as we age, uh, the immune system begins to not work as well, and it actually begins to cause problems, cause as many problems as it solves, And the the general term for that is chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is probably contributes to almost half of all the chronic diseases we have as we age, including cardiovascular disease, neurologic diseases, metabolic diseases, and cancer. And the biggest villain in the chronic inflammation area is the innate immune system. It's the part of the immune system most of us haven't hurt heard that much about most people know about t-cells and you know car t-cells and checkpoint inhibitors and all that kind of stuff but there's a second part of the immune system called the innate immune system which usually just sits there quietly in the background doing only good things until we get older then it starts doing bad things and those bad things are what we target and we target them to treat diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, such as COVID-19, such as NASH, and cancer. So it sounds like you're taking on a lot. Do do we think of you as a platform? So we're definitely a platform. And the reason I say that is because we like to say that we treat biology, not disease. In other words, what I told you, earlier about chronic inflammation kind of underpins all of these diseases. So some of the same biologic problems exist in cancer patients that exist in Alzheimer's patients that exist in NASH patients and exist in COVID-19 patients. So we can take a single platform, which in our case is DNTNF, that's dominant negative TNF inhibitor, and we can put it into these programs to treat these various diseases. So that is why, although we're small, we can do a lot because we have one drug, one platform, that can be used to treat a wide variety of diseases, and it's all because we're treating one biology. That's a dysfunctional or dysregulated innate immune system. Okay. So for the sake of today, let's just focus on your, your two front runners. Which would they be? 
So our two front runners are clearly, you know, the first foremost is uh, our Alzheimer's program. And then our, our program to treat co- complications of COVID-19 infection is, uh, is, is uh, and will be treating its first patients over the next uh, week or so. So, you know, it seems odd that you can take a single drug, dominant negative TNF inhibitor, and use it to treat diseases which seem to be really quite different. You know, Alzheimer's disease is the disease of our time, so to speak. It's, you know, as it's really a disease that really is kind of an unintended consequence of of the great success, medical successes we've had over the last hundred years where life expectancy has gone, has doubled from 40 into the 80s. You know, back at the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th century, 1900s, you know, Alzheimer's wasn't a big deal because people didn't live that long. Now everybody lives that long. So Alzheimer's becomes an increasing medical problem, an increasing public health problem. It's a big deal. I don't need to tell any of the listeners about COVID-19. It is completely uh, changing the way we do just about everything in our lives. It's a problem that will be solved, but it's still going to take a little while. And until the vaccines get widely distributed, where there's going to be a need for treatment of these um, of, of patients with complications from COVID-19 infection. So I'm sure the listener is sitting there going, so how can a single drug, what the heck is this magic bullet that's treating these two, two diseases? Well, it's really not a magic bullet. What the dominant negative TNF inhibitor is, is it's a second generation TNF inhibitor. TNF stands for tumor necrosis factor. Now, <clears throat> many of the listeners are familiar with TNF inhibitors because they are the largest pharmaceutical franchise on the planet. They uh, last year over 40 billion with a B dollars worth of uh, TNF inhibitors were sold globally. But that all those sales really are very narrowly focused into autoimmune disease, diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, um, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, and psoriasis. We are targeting completely different set of diseases. That is, we're targeting cancer, metabolic diseases, uh, infectious diseases, and um, neurologic diseases. So why can we target those diseases and the other guys can't? Well, it's simple. Even though they both have TNF in their name, these drugs are very different. The first-generation TNF inhibitors are trapped into treating uh, um, autoimmune disease because they have side effects which limit their use. Those side effects are immunosuppression, that is, they increase the risk of infection, they increase the risk of, of cancer, and they cause demyelination or neurologic diseases. In other words, if patients are on them long enough, they get the equivalent of MS or multiple sclerosis. So hence, they are really in a niche. It's a big niche, it's a valuable niche, but it's a niche nonetheless. Because our drug works very differently, targets only soluble TNF, which is the bad TNF, and not transmembrane TNF, which is the good TNF, we are perfectly positioned to be effective in treating patients with diseases like Alzheimer's disease, 
diseases like COVID-19. So let's talk about our Alzheimer's disease program because we're pretty excited about it. We're in a phase one trial uh, treating patients uh, with biomarkers of inflammation who have Alzheimer's disease. Now, what do, you, what do I mean by biomarkers of inflammation? Well, most of the listeners will be familiar with the terms of amyloid and tau as they relate to Alzheimer's disease because that's what biopharma and academia has been focused on for the last 30 years. But in fact, billions of dollars of drug development has occurred, developing therapeutics to treat amyloid and tau, and they've all failed. And why have they failed? They failed because they're treating the wrong thing. In other words, it's kind of like if you have a, 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 a car in your driveway that has flat tires, and you say, oh, I'm going to fill up the gas tank and I'm going to drive off. Well, you might be able to drive off, but the main problem is flat tires, and you still have flat tires because you didn't replace the tires. So what everybody has been doing is focusing on amyloid and tau when really there's other problems that cause dementia. And the main problem, the, main, the top of almost everybody's list, is neuroinflammation, inflammation of the brain, of the CNS, central nervous system. And it's really all about a special cell called the microglial cell, which is the cell that is the immune cell of the brain. Its normal job is to protect the brain, but when it gets older, when it gets dysregulated, it starts producing cytokines such as TNF, which actually begin to kill brain cells and to begin to cut the connections between brain cells and to what makes us human is we have brain cells filled with memories and those cells can communicate with ourselves with each other through synapses and when that whole system works we're a fully functioning human being when it doesn't you end up with dementia and all of us have seen patients with severe Alzheimer's disease and it is a debilitating and desperate disease. So our phase one trial, although we haven't finished the trial and we haven't um, reported the final results, we presented some preliminary results back in January. And what we clearly showed was that we decreased neuroinflammation, which was the primary goal of the study. But what was more interesting is we decreased neuroinflammation in a very specific neuroanatomic structure called the arcuate fasciculus. And you don't need to remember that. You just need to know that that's, that's the superhighway that connects the parts of the brain responsible for language and communication. One of the things that makes us human is our ability to communicate with language. And one of the things, the most sensitive clinical symptoms that doctors and neurologists have to determine whether someone is developing Alzheimer's disease or their Alzheimer's disease is getting worse is whether those that those language skills are failing and the fact that we are fixing neuroinflammation in on that superhighway in other words we're fixing those potholes that connect those parts of the brain that are responsible for language suggests that we've got a drug that's going to make a difference in this, these patients. Now, we need to prove that. There's no question about it. This is this point, we, all we know is we've got a very strong signal. We're confident. 
We know we'll be starting a phase two trial next year uh, in 2021, but we've got work to do, but we're quite comfortable that we've passed the first hurdle, which in many ways is the hardest hurdle, and we're moving forward with our therapy for Alzheimer's disease. So let me stop there for a moment and see if you want me to continue uh, with our COVID-19 program or uh, if you want to ask, ask some questions. Uh, a couple questions uh, regarding the Alzheimer program. Are you looking to be a cure or just to make the disease less severe? So, good question. So, I think there's, there's obviously, uh, the, the C word, as I like to say, it is not, is rarely used in, um, in medicine. Because, in fact, usually most of our therapies, our, our job is to stop progression. So if I have someone with Alzheimer's disease who, you know, is, let's say they can take care of themselves, they remember their wife, they're a little forgetful, um, and we can stop the disease from progressing because it always does, that's a success. That patient will probably have mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. Do I think that I can take someone who has very advanced disease and you know, recover that patient back towards normal? I don't think so. I mean, I, at this point, we, we believe that the patients with the most advanced disease will get little benefit from our drug. Don't know, though. I mean, we'll have to test that. But at this point, and what the FDA demands, it shows that we can stop the progression of the disease or decrease the progression of the disease. That's what we need to get approved. And I can tell you, you know, if you could change the slope of the disease, that's a big deal. You know, if people, if it takes people 20 years to get, you know, to the point where they need care instead of 10 years, you've got 10 years. And chances are they'll die of something else. Because, you know, remember, people start this process when they're 70 years old. So I'd, I'd ask you about the current state of care for that, but I don't think there is one. Is that correct? So there are no treatments for Alzheimer's disease. You know, Biogen has aducanumab, which is a drug-targeting amyloid, uh, about to have a um, uh, FDA advisory board on November 6th. Um, that will be the first one, and it's a bit of a controversial drug, and it's weak. At the end of the day, it's weak. It's going to be not going to be good for most patients. But the bottom line is it's a start. Just remember, I mean, people remember, you know, in the days, the early days of HIV therapies. The first therapies were lousy, but they were something. And now, hell, people live 20, 30 years with HIV because the therapies are so good. So that's kind of, we're in the early days here, the early innings. And, you know, we think we got a pretty good solution. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's probably no silver bullets. We'll be used as monotherapy in many patients, but we'll also be used as part of combination therapy in probably even a greater number of patients. So it's exciting times. It's exciting times, but uh, and the future is bright. Okay, RJ, at this early stage, though, what, do, what gives you the confidence that you're on the right track here? What gives us the confidence is that we 
using our biomarkers, which is we, we look at something using an MRI scan, which is a special kind of neuroimaging scan, we look at something called white matter tracks. And I mentioned that the white matter tracks are the superhighways that connect the parts of the brain that need to work together. And it turns out that those white matter tracks, uh, when you start, is, is where much of this inflammation exists. And when you get inflammation in these white matter tracks, the nerves can't, remember I said the nerve cells can't talk to each other. So it turns out we can look in, using MRI, we can look into the brain and we can look at these various white matter tracks and we can image them and we can see if they have neuroinflammation by measuring something called white matter-free water. And because we are affecting the arcuate fasciculus, which is the white matter tract associated with language, we know we're not only are we decreasing neuroinflammation, but we're decreasing neuroinflammation in a neuroanatomic structure that is critical in Alzheimer's disease. So we are quite confident. And, and by the way, you know, how, do you, how does the FDA want you to prove that you have a drug that is effective? They want you to do uh, cognitive scales. And about 70%, maybe less, of all cognitive scales involve language skills, right? So the bottom line is we are targeting, we are having an effect in the part of the brain that is critical for the language skills that are critical for getting a drug approved in Alzheimer's disease. So that's why we're pretty excited about this. Very good. Are there any um, write-ups in major journals? So we haven't published this data yet. Um, you know, we have... If you go to our website, we've got like 65 publications. We've got a lot of publications, albeit they're in animal data for now. But we will be, you know, we just presented the data at the Alzheimer's Disease Drug Development Foundation, which is the second largest charity in the U.S. Um, uh, in early October. I think in August we presented the data at the Alzheimer's Association meeting. So we are getting the data out, but we won't publish it until we actually have a final, uh, the data is uh, complete. Okay. So moving on to COVID, um, I, I'm imagining that's not the standard uh, phase one, two, three studies. Uh, is that correct? And, and no, we're jumping with, with COVID. We're jumping right into a phase two. And part of that is because, you know, we've got enough phase one data that we can do that. And part of that is because the FDA has been quite cooperative, I would say, in helping companies like us get programs started in COVID-19. You know, the, the FDA has really been a partner uh, with Biopharma in this, in this process, trying to facilitate, you know, getting um, – new th novel therapies to patients. So, you know, when you think of COVID-19, there's really kind of three therapeutic, shall we say, silos. The first is the vaccines. That's a pre prevention silo, you know, prevention. And that's really what's, what it's going to take to solve the problem. That's not us. The second is an antiviral. Remdesivir is the one that comes to name. And that's to treat patients with who have, you know, the virus. The assumption is that if you get rid of the virus, you know, you, will, um, you won't get sick. The th we're not that. Uh, the third thing is what we call 
treatments of co- treatment of the complications of COVID-19, and this is targeting the 20% of the patients that end up in the hospital with complications of COVID-19. So the way it works, if 100 patients get infected, 100 people get infected with COVID-19, 40 never know they have it. 40 get the world, you know, get sick enough that they feel like they've been run over by a truck, but they don't feel like they need to go to the hospital or go to seek medical attention. And the other 20% of the patients that end up seeking medical care, of the 20%, about a third of those end up in the ICU. So you're talking about maybe, you know, 6% of patients. And then overall, about 4% of all patients die. So... Um, you know, it's, 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 it's four times more deadly than the flu, and it's certainly been more problematic than the flu, which we're used to because we have a flu season every year. So we're focused on the complications of COVID-19, that 20%. And what we're focused on is getting patients, treating patients so they don't get worse, they don't end up in an ICU, they don't need respiratory support, they don't need intubation, and they get home quickly. And how do we do that? We do that by targeting something called the cytokine storm. The patients who get sick all have increased inflammatory cytokines in their blood, and the patients that end up in the hospital are the ones with the cytokine storm. And the cytokine storm is primarily TNF, IL-1, and IL-6. Those are inflammatory cytokines that are markedly elevated in patients. So it's obvious, one of the obvious therapeutic strategies is if, 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 the, if it's the virus that's making you sick, you give them an antiviral therapy. If it's the cytokines that's making them sick, you give them anti-cytokine therapies. Well, the dirty little secret of COVID-19 is that by the time the patient gets to the hospital, they've got a raging cytokine storm, and that cytokine storm is actually a reflection that their immune system is going all in attacking the virus. And when it goes all in attacking the virus, it makes the patient sick, but it's doing a pretty good job of controlling the virus. In fact, by the time a patient gets to the hospital, their viral titer is going down. That is, the immune system is winning the battle against the virus. The problem is the immune system, that that hyperinflammatory state, is making the patient sick. So to us, it's not that they need an antiviral. It's they need a strategy to control their cytokine storm. So technically... Technically, you could actually, you know, probably go after any of these cytokines. Remember, I mentioned three, TNF, IL-1, and IL-6. But we think TNF is the way to go for a number of reasons. First of all, it's the master cytokine. It's the most important of those three cytokines because it is upregulated first, and it actually drives the increases in IL-1 and IL-6. The more important reason to go after TNF is because I don't think the, the, what the cytokine storm is doing is it's actually stimulating cells or causing cells of, that line the blood vessels called endothelial cells to become inflamed. And those cells 
then cause blood clots to form, and the blood clots break off and go to the lung, go to the kidneys, go to the brain, go to the heart, and cause all those problems. So if you get rid of the TNF, you get rid of endothelial inflammation, you get rid of the blood clots, you get rid of problems with the lungs, liver, kidneys, brain, heart, and you get the patient home, you keep them out of the high CU, and you keep them from dying. So that's what our clinical trial is doing. And at this stage, um, is there any anecdotal evidence that you're on the right track here? So there is anecdotal evidence that targeting the cytokine storm makes a difference. There's some data with anti-IL-6 that that shows their patients benefit. But nobody has done a TNF trial, and the reason is simple. Remember I told you way back in the beginning of this discussion that, that the, the current generation of TNF inhibitors cause immunosuppression. In other words, they make you at higher risk to get infections. And the last thing you want to do when someone has a life-threatening viral disease is immunosuppress them. So people have been afraid to use the first-generation TNF inhibitors to treat these patients. Our drug, as I mentioned, does not cause immunosuppression. In fact, it improves the immune response. So our drug is perfectly targeted for the TNF. So the current anti-cytokine therapies, they, they, they may get a, pick off a cytokine like IL-6, but they're not going to have an effect on the blood clots or the endothelial inflammation. So we are really in a unique situation, and we are very anxious to get this trial underway. Okay. So interesting technology and, you know, lots of different uh, areas you can go after. Have you partnered for any of the areas? Not yet. I mean, obviously, you know, we, um, I'm, I sit by the phone, but nobody's calling. And I think nobody's calling because, you know, I think most biopharma companies that are interested in partnering, they're looking for what we classify as phase two data, you know, proof of concept data. And we're just we're just in the process that we'll be over the next two years generating that proof of concept data. So, you know, and quite frankly, I'd rather get that proof of concept data because hopefully our valuations will reflect the success in the clinic. And then when someone comes knocking, the, the, the investors will benefit even more than they have so far. So, as we look out over the next year, what are some of the events or milestones that we should watch for? So the most important milestones will be, um, you know, data from the Phase One Alzheimer's trial. That will be clinical data. And it's my experience that that is, for the most part, the most important milestone that any company has, reporting clinical trial data. We'll be initiating uh, at least three clinical trials uh, over the next 12 months. Um, you know, starting clinical trials is exciting, but the investors uh, are, tend to be a little more skeptical about starting trials because, you know, you don't know what the results are going to be, although I have to say we design trials that for the most part are successful. So I think, you know, I think, it, I think what's going to drive the value of this company for the next little bit will be data from, uh, from the Alzheimer's trial uh, probably this year and early next year, and then maybe data from the COVID-19 uh, effort 
uh, um, mid-year next year or mid or end of year of 2021. So those are what's uh, going to really drive value. Doesn't mean that that's all we're doing. We have stuff going on in the background. As I mentioned earlier, we believe we have a therapy that can benefit many of these diseases associated with aging and chronic inflammation. And so we're just getting started. Very good. So before we go, um, any closing, closing remarks or, or why you think that Inmune is a great place for our investors to put money? So I think if you, if, if you buy into my uh, hypothesis that, you know, we're all about Alzheimer's over the next year or so, um, if you look at our valuation, you know, our market cap compared to companies that are either behind us or, you know, some of them not even in the clinic yet with Alzheimer's programs, they have a much higher valuation than we do. So we think, you know, we think we've been a little bit under the radar and we, I would encourage investors take a hard look at us and, you know, see that even if we just – get up to the levels of our peers, um, it's an investment worth considering. And as you can imagine, if as, you know, data begins to roll off with Alzheimer's disease, if we have this kind of effects that we hope we do, that, that we've, we, we feel we should get, then things may get even more interesting more quickly. Well, for multiple reasons, we hope it works out. Great. Great. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing the story. Very interesting one. Super. Thank you for your time today, everybody. Bye.